All right, so a word on the, on the notes we're going to be using today. Uh, the one we're picking up right now is the 318 to 21. And tucked away in here is also the next section, 401 to 11. And then there's another document over there, 412 to 19. See, I feel better about myself when I print lots of notes. Not that we'll necessarily get through all of them, but I feel better that I've printed them. So that's, the, uh, that's what we have over there. So right now we're going to start with 318 to 22. And so if you can make sure to have those notes, that's where we'll pick up this time. Let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll jump right in. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity this semester, these many weeks to have studied First Peter. And we pray in these last few weeks as we seek to understand the text and to dig uh, as deep as we can with the time that we have remaining, that we would be able to see your will from the text. These are your words. You've given them to us for our good and so that we might grow in the likeness of your son and so help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3, please. All right, First Peter chapter 3. We are getting into what has sometimes been classified as the most difficult passage in the New Testament. All right? Uh, so, in fact, you can read down here, introduction to a difficult text. Martin Luther famously said of this passage, a wonderful text is this, and more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. I do not know for certain just what Peter means. So, <clears throat> obviously, we're dealing with a difficult text. Let's read the text, discover exactly what it is that causes us the difficulty. <clears throat> All right, notice with me, we're going to start in verse 18, move all the way down to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made pro proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, it is in it only a few people, that is eight or eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So even as I read that text, perhaps a couple of phrases stuck out to you that are of some controversial nature. First, Jesus went and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Who are these spirits? Why are they in prison? What's that about? Uh, when did he go there? All right. And then he uses this analogy of baptism and uh, the ark. And he says, just like the ark, um, just like the waters in the ark saved Noah, uh, so the waters of baptism save you. And we think, well, wait a second, baptism saves? That's not language we tend to say. Further, how can we say the analogy between the waters of the flood are like the waters of baptism? Because one devastated the world and the other seems to cleanse the world. So what exactly is that about? So there's a lot going on here that is quite difficult to understand. 
So let's take a look at the passage and see if we can't make some, some sense of it. Now, I will argue that I actually think a significant section of the text is not very controversial at all. In fact, here's what I'd say, verse 18, verse 22, it's quite straightforward. It's pretty easy. Verses 19, 20, and 21, that's where we have our difficulty. And so let's not lose focus of the major elements for the minor. In other words, we've got a forest here and we've got some trees. The forest is clear. The, de- the defined, the, the edges of the forest, we know exactly where the forest is. We know what that's talking about. But when we dig deep into the forest, when we kind of zoom down, all of a sudden we're not exactly sure what to do with all these trees. So let's look at the forest more than the trees. So here's what I'm going to suggest Peter's doing in this passage. He's telling us these things. He tells, he tells us what Jesus did, why Jesus did it, and then how Jesus did it. All right? Now, I've provided for you on the next page this, uh, this chart. And uh, this chart did not derive from me, though it's been edited by me. Uh, a guy by the name of Patrick Schreiner is the first one I saw use this chart, and I thought it was really helpful. So uh, with his permission, I, I, I took it and edited it for my own work here. And there are five major views of what this passage is talking about with Jesus going down and proclaiming to spirits in prison. So let's take a look at these five views, starting with the top one. The first view is this, that Jesus preached through Noah. Where, Where did Jesus go? He went to the earth. When did Jesus go? He went in Noah's day. Who did he speak to? The humans of Noah's day. And what did he give them? He gave them the gospel. Why did he do this? Well, he preached to a hostile society. That is, he was preaching to the people of Noah's day so that they might repent. So Peter's point then would be, if this is the right interpretation of this passage, that we likewise should preach the gospel even in a difficult context. Now, of course, the difficulty of this view is that How can we say that Jesus preached when it was actually Noah preaching? And those who want to get around this say that a little bit earlier, Paul or Peter in chapter 2 said that the Spirit proclaimed through the prophets, the Spirit of Jesus proclaimed through the prophets about the sufferings that he was going to endure. So they say this is the same thing. Jesus was essentially in Noah proclaiming this truth. I have very many difficulties with that interpretation. And so let's move to the next one and we'll work through why I think the one I'm going to choose here is the best interpretation. So let's look at a second interpretation. This is a second chance for the rebellious. So where did Jesus go? He went to Sheol or Hades or hell, same place. He went before his resurrection. So this is, he's died and this is his intermediate state. So he's died. He's got three days before he raises from the dead. What does he do in those three days? Well, one of the things is revealed in this text, according to this second view. He went down into hell and he proclaimed to the humans who had been enchained there. So let's just think, say like Cain and essentially all unbelievers from the time period of uh, the beginning all the way until Jesus' day. And he preached the gospel to them, giving them a second chance for repentance. 
Of course, the difficulty with this view is that Scripture suggests that there is no second chance. That, in fact, when uh, the, the book of Hebrews says, uh, first comes death and then the judgment. So, I don't think the second option is an option for believers who are uh, accurately understanding the entirety of Scripture. How about the third view? It's the release of the righteous dead. So here's what happens. Jesus goes down to hell during this inter-period, uh, after he's died, before he's raised, and he preaches to the humans about the gospel, releasing the Old Testament saints. In other words, Old Testament saints were in a place called Sheol. They were not in hell. They were in Sheol. And the, the defense of this is, uh, remember that parable with the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man can see Abraham, right? Uh, though they're in different situations because the rich man here is in torment, but Abraham is not. And so there's this view that there's two compartments. Now, my own view is that that's a, a parable completely. But according to this view, that's a literal rendition that people could not be in God's presence prior to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So, since that's the case, he had, to, uh, he had to die and be raised in order to raise them up with him. So he goes down to those who are in Sheol, not judgment, not in hell, but in a different compartment of Sheol. There's a compartment of Sheol that's judgment. There's a compartment that's not. And he releases those captives to come back up with him. Now, I'm going to suggest that this is not right, simply because the language he refers to here is that they are in prison. And it strikes me that uh, dead saints are not in prison. Okay, so fourth view. It's a victory over rebellious humans. And so Jesus does go down to Sheol, Hades. It's before the resurrection. So again, in this inter, um, interstate between his death and resurrection, he speaks to humans proclaiming his victory over, uh, over sin and death. And he's not redeeming any of them, but he's just proclaiming his victory over death. It's hard to imagine, though, why he would go and proclaim such a, uh, this sort of thing to humans. <clears throat> so that leads, leaves us with the fifth view. And if you follow most teachers, they tend to do this. They put their view, the last one. So that's, that's, that's what I've got here. So this is my view. And you might find it odd initially, but I'm going to try and convince you of it. So it's the victory over fallen angel view. So where did Jesus go? I think he did go to Sheol, Hades, or a portion of the heavens. And you say, well, wait a second. <laughs> a portion of the heavens? This doesn't sound right if these are the fallen angels. But if you remember in the book of Revelation, when God's judgment comes upon Satan, where is he cast out of? He's cast out of heaven. Satan is presently in heaven. Now, not where God is, but heaven is not like just one little location. It is a whole realm in which the fallen angels actually have access to a portion of heaven in which God is. I, I think there's a separation between them. Um, but Jesus goes to these fallen angels wherever they are held. I would tend to think these ones are held in Sheol or Hades, though, and I'll tell you why in just a second. 
This is, in my opinion, after the resurrection. I'll share with you why that is. And who does he speak to? He speaks to fallen angels. He speaks to angels who have been chained in eternal darkness. And what does he proclaim to them? He proclaims to them his own victory. And so this is not the message they wanted to hear. But it's Jesus' message of victory over them. He has secured their damnation. And so the uh, implication, Peter's point, is this. Jesus suffered unjustly, but was vindicated over his enemies, including these fallen angels. All right, so let me walk through what I think this, pa- this passage is doing. Yes, go ahead. But in 19 it says, and after being made alive, he went and proclaimed. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like he was already back, you know, after the resurrection. I agree with I you. Mean, so in every uh, Bible that I read, they all pretty much said the same thing. And then, mm-hmm. after he was alive in the spirit. Right. So some think that there is a life in the spirit that is a disembodied life. So it's, it's this period. And, and we'll, we'll talk about it. So, so let's, let's look at the text, and I'll show you why they think that. So I, I'm, I argued that I think Peter's doing three things. He's telling us what Jesus did. And then he's telling us why he did it. And then he's telling us how he did it. So the first thing he tells us is Jesus suffered once for our sins. And this is important. This is very much like the book of Hebrews. He only did it once. His sacrifice was sufficient. He died once. And he did so for sins. He himself, according to 119, was sinless. So he didn't die for his own sins. So if he died for sins, he must have died for somebody else's sins because he didn't have sins, which of course is our sins. And it was the just for the unjust. We call this in biblical literature, uh, vicarious atonement. That Jesus died in the place of someone else. The just for the unjust. So that the unjust could in fact be just. So why did Jesus suffer making just the unjust? It was, notice this next line, in order to bring you to God. That's what it says there in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Here's why Jesus suffered, to bring you to God. The language of bring is a Greek word that suggests taking somebody into the very presence of the king to usher somebody into the, into the king, king's presence. And so the implication of this is that had Jesus not have died, you could not enter the presence of the king. And we know that to be true. So in order to give us access to God, Jesus suffered for our sins. Of course, this implies something quite significant about our sin. Because if our sin was a small thing, a trifle matter, well, then there probably could have been something we could have done to fix this issue ourselves. But, you know, when you've got to go to the extent that the Son of God has to take the incarnate form and die on a cross for our sake, you see how significant sin is. So, 
not his primary motivation, but there is one other reason he suffers for sins. He puts it this way, that he might leave an example for believers. He says this in verse 18, because, or 4, because, and it goes back to the previous context. Because we haven't really talked about the previous context, but he was just talking about the fact that we might actually have to endure slander for the sake of Christ. And that it's better to suffer for doing good than for suffering evil. And then he says, for Christ actually suffered for the good. And the point is this, that we may actually have to go through some unjust suffering, but like Christ, we can be vindicated. All right, so first thing, what did Jesus do? He suffered for our sins. Second, why did he do it? He did it to bring us to God. And the third thing Peter gives us here in this text then is, how did Jesus do it? And remember, I told you that in some ways, this passage is quite clear. Verses 18 and 22 are quite clear. And that's where the majority of the content of the, the main themes of the passage come from. And so there are three participles that indicate what Jesus did. You'll notice two of them come in verse 18, one in verse 19. So let's take a look again at verse 18. He says, he was put to death first, put to death in the body. Second, but made alive in the spirit. So put to death, made alive. And then the third thing, verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And then jump all the way down to verse 22. Who has gone into heaven? Okay, so here's what I'd say, the three things that Jesus does. And between... Number two and number three is everything that he does, right? So what does he do first? He dies. Second, he's made alive. And then he does everything in 19 through 21. And then in 22, he ascends to the Father. So whatever happens in this passage happens after he's raised from the dead, but before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. That's very important. So notice down here under C, it says being made alive in the spirit. There are two difficulties in this passage. It could be he was made alive in the spirit. And that's how people take it in reference to, um, because notice he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So some people see that dichotomy, the flesh spirit dichotomy. The flesh was dead, but his spirit was alive. That's essentially what they're thinking. But I take it as you do. And part of the reason I take it that way, that it's not the spirit-flesh contrast, but it's the flesh and the spirit of God contrast, is because if he does not mention the resurrection in verse 18, he never mentions the resurrection in the passage. I mean, he does mention later on that uh, you will be saved by the resurrection, but he doesn't actually mention the action of the resurrection in reference to Jesus. So I think 18 has to be the resurrection. So it is not in the spirit, but by the Holy Spirit. So it's not in the small S, but by the big S. We were raised, Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit. And uh, scripture testifies to this in 1 Timothy 3, 16, Romans 1, 4, Romans 8, 11 that it was the very Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So then, here's, here's what I want us to see then. 
the main lines of the argument are quite clear. Jesus suffered for our sins. He did it to bring us to God. And he did it by being put to death, by rising again, and ultimately by being taken to the right hand of God, where at the right hand of God, he can usher us into his presence. So don't miss that because that's, me, that's Peter's main point. Now let's dig into some of the details and see some of the other elements that become somewhat controversial for us. So notice I say it's an excursus. An excursus is merely a way of saying that, there's a, that somebody digs into something that isn't pertinent to the main point directly. So in this excursus, Peter says this, He was put to death, but made alive. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Well, exactly who are these imprisoned spirits? Well, modern readers debate the identity quite a bit. Augustine and Grudem say they're the people of Noah's day, but that just doesn't make sense. Others argue that the dead spirits of sinful people. The problem with that is that the term spirit is only once in the entirety of the New Testament used of people. And that's in Hebrews where it says the spirits of dead people. And so it clarifies every other time, and it's used frequently, every other time, guess who it's used in reference to? Angels. Spirit beings. Yes? Sure. Yeah. It's a great question. <laughs> I don't know where they fit in. But they don't fit into this passage. He's not talking about them. So the word used for spirits, I mentioned, is used of angelic beings. Second, the idea that they are in prison suggests to me that this is not a good thing. Anybody here want to go to prison? Probably not. Prison's not a place you want to be, right? It's, it's a confinement. So this isn't a good thing. And so I don't think the righteous dead have been in prison. The way Peter introduces these spirits suggests that everybody knows who he's talking about. No, the spirit's in prison. It's like, huh? What spirit's in prison? Now, I think the reason that you and I say, what spirit's in prison is because we, don't, we are not as familiar with the Jewish texts that were popular in that day as they were. So I've included for you a text from a passage in 1st Enoch. And it speaks of the fallen angels of Genesis 6. Now let me just pause and remind you of Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is God's declaration of why he's going to bring the flood. And the reason he brings the flood is because sinful humanity. But there's another element of that sinful humanity. If you'll remember, the sons of God married the daughters of men. Now, throughout the whole Old Testament, the phrase sons of God refers to angels. They procreated, had children, and these were abnormal children, abnormally large. Uh, They were unnatural, is essentially what Genesis is telling us. Now, most, you know, we in the Western world, I think we get very discomforted when we think of angels and humans and we think well no angels and humans can't go together and of course part of the reason we say that is even Jesus' own proclamation he says that angels are not given in marriage 
And that is true. They're not given in marriage. But one wonders whether they were able to engage in this sort of activity. I would suggest they were. And here's part of the reason why I say that. Look with me in this selection from First Enoch, if you've got the notes there. And I'll try and read this quickly. He says, It came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days, they were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And some Jaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to this deed, and I shall alone have to pay the penalty of this great sin. And they all answered him and said, Oh, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do it. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and defile themselves with them. And the Lord said to Michael, Go, bind some Jaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to defile themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation. Till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment in the prison in which they shall be confined forever. So exactly what, what is this passage talking about? It's talking about Genesis 6. And again, this is, Jewish, this is Jewish history. This is what the Jews said. Now, is this inspired? No, it's not inspired. So it could be wrong. But we know that Peter knew this text. How do we know that? Well, I want you to notice two passages that are in the New Testament. Jude 6. Actually, let's look at 2 Peter 2 4 first. He says this, Likewise, or God, he says this, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for the judgment. 2 Peter 2, 4. Er, a little bit later, Peter actually mentions the book of 1 Enoch. So does Peter know the book of 1 Enoch? Yes. And if he talks about angels who sin being held in judgment, what's he talking about? I think your really only option is this one. Look at Jude 6. It speaks of, quote, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains until the day of judgment. Indeed, I want you to look at, uh, if you have opportunity here, look at the book of Jude with me for a moment because there's a phrase in the book of Jude that I think secures this. I should have included it here. Um, notice how it goes. So he says, the angels who did not keep their position of authority. Um, and then he says this, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding uh, towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality. So notice, he's just talked about the angels. The angels who didn't keep their position of authority, but they sinned. And then he says, in the same way, how Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves over into sexual immorality. So what sin did the angels commit? Sexual immorality. Going back to Genesis chapter 6. Now, I recognize this is totally foreign to our minds. <laughs> We're thinking, what in the world's going on here? Angels and uh, being sexual creatures. I've never thought about this. I mean, Hollywood has. There, I, I think there are two movies where angels gave up their domain because they loved a woman on 
But in any case, uh, I remember some movie like that some, some while ago. But, uh, you know, it seems odd to us. But remember how little we know about angels. And we, we know almost nothing about them. I used to teach a systematic theology class. And, um, you know, so you, you do all the heads of doctrine. And we get to angelology and there's almost nothing to say. We know that they're significant creatures. And you look in Daniel and you see that they're, in fact, significantly impacting our world. Ephesians chapter 6. The, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness in this present age. So how do these angelic beings influence the world in which we live? I don't know how to talk about all that. I don't know what they're capable of. I don't know what the world of the spirit beings is like. All I can simply say is I'm convinced that this passage is talking about the angelic beings of, of Genesis chapter 6. They're the ones who are in prison. And so Jesus went and made a proclamation to those imprisoned spirits. Now, you say, well, why are they imprisoned and some others are not? It strikes me that God imprisoned the ones who engaged in sexual immorality, but he did not imprison the rest of them. Do you remember when Jesus was casting out the pigs or the, the demon into the pigs? Do you remember what they asked him not to do? Yeah, they, they said, do not send us to the abyss into the, waiting for the judgment. In other words, they knew that some of their other fallen spirits were there now, and they were still free at the present time, um, so they didn't want to be there, right? And I think that's, so, so some fallen spirits had engaged in activity, leaving their domain, and God judged them immediately. Others had not, and they are still engaging in um, whatever activity they're doing today. <laughs> yeah, maybe. All right, so, uh, so he then speaks about the spirits who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. Now, on all the other interpretations, it makes no sense why he mentions Noah. But if he's talking about Genesis 6, it makes quite a bit of sense, doesn't it? Because... Noah, the flood, I mean, this all happened because of the, the sexual sin of the angels. And then I think he has an excursus within an excursus. <laughs> so so he, he, he says this aside about the angels that Jesus went and proclaimed the gospel to. All right, it is the gospel, but it's negative for them because he's proclaimed what he's accomplished. But then he also talks about this water baptism. He he mentions it, you can see down here. Uh, he spoke to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And now he has this excursus on the ark. And he says, in the ark was only a few people, eight were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So in what way does baptism save us? And in what way is it like the ark. And here's what I would say. Here, here's how I take this passage. I think what Peter is saying is this, that by means of the floodwaters, God cleansed the palate of the world and provided an opportunity for a fresh start. If God had not done that, he would have had to have judged the world immediately. And so, so instead he wiped the floor clean I'll get to your question in just a second. He wiped everything clean and provided a fresh start. 
And I think that's what he does with baptism too. And I don't think he's talking about actual physical baptism here. If you remember in the ancient church, uh, you know, um, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading Isaiah, Philip comes along, teaches him what it means, and they're still in the carriage, and he says, look, there's a body of water. What keeps me from getting baptized? And he says, nothing. So let's go get baptized, right? There's this idea that you have been spirit baptized. That is, you've come under the conviction of the spirit, and you've been transformed. You've been made new by the spirit. That's spirit baptism. That's what we picture in physical baptism. And so sometimes scripture speaks of baptism as a united whole. It's not speaking of physical baptism alone but it's actually speaking of physical baptism as the act that represents the previous act. The reason that I go up and I get dunked underwater is because something already spiritually happened to me, that I died to sin and I rose to righteousness. So that's what he's talking about here. And he says, look, baptism saves you. That is, when you're raised, when, when you die to sin and are raised, it, it wipes clean a fresh new slate for you too. It washes away sin like the waters of the flood washed away the sin of the world so that there's a new start. Yes, go ahead. You had a question. So it's kind of weird what the topic is going to be. <laughs> you didn't think you were coming to hear about this on Wednesday night. <laughs> I think, no, it got rid of the, it got rid of the progeny of them because what had happened was that they bore sons and daughters and these sons and daughters were abnormal because they were not human. They were not angel. They were something in between, but they were physical enough that they could die. And so the flood did, did wipe away all of them. Yes, yeah, and, and none of those exist. And I think the severity of the judgment made it so that no angel is willing to do that again, right? Um, so that I don't think we're going to run into that problem anymore. Great question. Yeah, go ahead. What about um, where the Bible talks about, there's two other references I can think of about like giants, like you've got Goliath, yeah. Goliath and then you have like, in the Israelites were supposed to take mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think those are, are not angelic beings or the progeny of angels because otherwise they would have had to have survived the flood and they weren't that big. <laughs> um, so I, I think that they are being compared to them in essence. They're, they're just monstrous family and, uh, and probably bred to be monstrous. Um, you know, the, the Canaanites probably, you know, the, the large males, uh, you know, bred so that they could have very large children. And so the family of Goliath was, was this sort of thing. But I don't think that they're angelic. Uh, though language might suggest a connection, I think that's an, that's an analogy. They're, they're almost like them. That's a great question. So 
how does this baptism save us then? He's not talking about physical baptism. He's talking about the spirit baptism. The spirit baptism does save us. And in fact, he clarifies that he's not talking about physical baptism because notice what he says down here. Um, Not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not the physical act of baptism that saves you. It's not like you got in the water and somebody rubbed the dirt off you and now you're saved. No, it's the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And I would suggest that that is repentance. So it's the pledge of a clear conscience before God. That is repentance and faith that accompany baptism is what saves us. And further, it saves you not by your own action, but it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is, Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, you can rise in newness of life. All right. And then he gets back to verse 22, who's now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And then notice the last line, because this makes sense of everything in 19 to 21. With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So why do we have this excursus in the middle of this passage? And it's for this reason. Peter is emphasizing to us that literally nothing can stand against Jesus. Nothing. The angelic beings are all in submission to him. When he died and rose again after his resurrection, he went to their place of judgment and he made a proclamation that he had conquered and that they needed, that, that, that their judgment was secure. And, um, and I think part of that, what that encourages us with is a recognition that if Jesus could endure this and rise to such a place of prominence, then in the same way, whatever suffering we might endure, God will make it worth it. So notice I have some applications here. First, Jesus, the Son of God, suffered to bring us to God. Second application, because of Jesus, we now have access to the Father. Third, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have nothing to fear. Should we fear the angelic beings? Jesus has conquered them. There's nothing to fear. All angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. He rose to give us life, and he proved his right to rule over all, even the hostile spiritual beings. And I think the major point, then, is this. We, like Christ should take the long view of suffering. What do I mean by that? Notice back in 3.17, right before he talks about this, he uses this phrase. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And here, Jesus suffered for doing good. But what was the result? What was the outcome of his suffering? It was the pinnacle of glory. He rose above all powers and authorities And he's seated at the right hand of God. So if during your time of sojourn, your brief time of sojourn, you experience suffering and trial, these are not evidence that God doesn't love you. Did God not love Christ? Was there a a breach of the love between the members of the Trinity? No. Instead, like Christ, you're enduring suffering according to God's will that will ultimately lead to your vindication before all. 
And indeed, we travel the same path as Jesus. All right, so clearly there's probably no questions on that. So, uh, no, seriously, though, any questions? Yeah, go ahead. So, so the group of spirits that Jesus went to preach to, mm-hmm. was that only the angels, that, that subset of angels that were involved with immorality, or was it the angels... Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't thought of that. Um, But even to the first question, is it just those angels? I don't know. I mean, is it possible that part of the reason why the angels asking Jesus not to send them to the abyss is because Jesus had sent some of the angels to the abyss? I don't know. And maybe there were other sins that God judged in like kind. We don't know. We just know of this one event that I think he clearly did. Great question. Yeah, you'll have to ask your pastor how he takes Genesis chapter 6. Because we may take it totally differently. I don't know. I know the two commentaries that I was reading to. They, nothing like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> all that studying for nothing. Well, I will say that, um, you know, Luther and, and basically from the Reformation previously, part of their challenge was that that the book of first Enoch was not discovered like, you know, because you lost a lot between the early period and then the reformation. There was a lot of lost documents. And since then we've discovered quite a bit through excavations and that sort of thing. And we've discovered the first Enoch was everywhere. Everybody knew it, Um, but we had lost that for some time. So now that we read first Enoch, it becomes much clearer what Peter's talking about. Um, now, let me say, I don't think you need First Enoch to understand the scripture because at the end of the day, that passage means the same thing. Basically, if you take any of the five views that I just suggested to you, because the main point of the passage has to do with verse 18 and 22, and nobody debates about those. It's just that middling section. And so if somebody says, I, I disagree with you, I say, okay, that's fine. I think that's the best interpretation, but, and, uh, you know, it seems like that's become the scholarly consensus these days, but I was just, uh, you know, our pastor was just preaching in, um, in church and he was in the book of Jude. So he's working through that passage in Jude we just read and he did not take my position and, uh, and I did not stand up and say anything in the middle of his sermon. <laughs> Nor did I write him an email afterwards. Nor did I write him an email during. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I mean, it's fine. Uh, You know, the minutia of Scripture, we have to be willing to say, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this and that's okay. But I do think that's probably the most likely interpretation. All right. Yes, go ahead. Sure. That it was for the people that didn't know about Christ mm. before, you know, mm-hmm. Christ came. Yep. Because um, I think about the verse that talks about God's wishes that none would perish. Sure, yep. Um, so what would you, I mean, can you think of any scripture that would support that 
like there was an opportunity because I, I know there's you know there's different people that would walk with God before Christ, sure yes like Moses Enoch you know different right. people so how do you I'm yeah so I I guess yeah so I I don't know that there's any scripture that supports the idea that. Um, people just randomly came to God without some revelation. But I do think that there are indications that there, that God is at work in locations that we're just not aware of in Scripture. So, for instance, uh, Abraham comes and he meets uh, Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? I don't know, but he's called the priest of the Most High God, and it's clearly the same God that uh, Scripture talks about. So I think that there are hints every once in a while that God's at work in areas that we're just not aware of in Scripture, and he's got people that, you know, he's, he's given his revelation to. Um, I think w- we can't take that for granted in the present world um, because, you know, clearly today we, we know what the peoples of our world uh, believe and think and that sort of thing. I do think God's probably at work in ways that we're not aware of in the Muslim world and that sort of thing. It's just... Um, one of my friends who's a missionary uh, in, in, um, in the Middle East has talked about just the, the way that God's at work in those areas, but um, we still need to, to proclaim the gospel in those, those areas. A lot, a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I asked that, that question when we were in the other class. Yeah. And he said that um, God is God. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wants to know God, he's going to find a way. Sure. Yeah, and I think that that's been a uh, been a helpful way of thinking through it. If God works in someone's heart to desire after searching after Him, He's not going to abandon that person and not not uh, not bring the gospel to them. Yeah, I think that's helpful. All right, four one to eleven. Let's take a look at uh, at this passage then. <clears throat> Uh, We'll jump right down to chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, Since Christ then suffered in the flesh, you also... So, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So a couple of things about this. Two elements connect this passage with what came before. Obviously, we're still dealing with suffering. And then second of all, both deal with the role that believers have in reference to such suffering. Jesus suffered in the flesh, and we are suffering in the flesh. And then he says, equip yourselves with the same way of thinking, or arm yourselves with this same attitude. This is military language. He's saying, arm yourselves, get, get militarily prepared to battle suffering in the way Jesus did. And the way you're going to prepare is actually by the way you think. Oh, I wish we had some time to really discuss that. But, but the more I understand about myself, the more I understand that the way I think about things is so influential. And sometimes I need to literally talk to myself <laughs> and say, Tim, you are interpreting this really dumbly. Because I want to think this way, and my inclination is to go that way, and I need to talk to myself, literally, and say, Tim, that's just not true. Think about this, right? 
And so here he's saying, here's what we have to do. We have to mentally arm ourselves for suffering. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, so you equip yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, if Jesus went this path and you're following Jesus, guess what? You know, you're, you're following somebody and they just walk through the mud and you're supposed to be following them. Guess what? Probably going to be walking through the mud, right? And in the same way, that, that's what he's saying here. What exactly did Jesus think? And I, I think, you know, so you're arming yourselves with the same way of thinking. What was Jesus thinking? I think it was his resolve to suffer for righteousness so that he could receive the promise God, God had in front of him. This is like the language of Hebrews. God saw the promise, of, the promise beyond the cross, so he endured the cross. And we see the promises God's given to us, so we endure the suffering because the reward is worth it. In other words, Jesus had what we might call a long view of suffering because we are tempted when we're in suffering to have a very short view of suffering. What's this going to do to me today? I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't make it through this. Uh, we get that, I mean, I, you know, so one of our, uh, one of our families in our church, uh, you know, she had battled cancer and was cancer free and then just had a scan and uh, there are spots. And so all of a sudden now she's got another trial and suffering and, you know, immediately we say we can't do it, but we have to take the long view on these sorts of things and say, first of all, our suffering is temporary. Uh, what, what can cancer do to me? It can introduce me to Jesus quicker, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm not being loose with, with cancer here. Cancer is serious and I don't wish it upon anyone nor myself. But at the end of the day, if we have the right view of it, we say, all right, well, if this is what the road God wants me to walk, then I can. I have a long view of suffering. Further, Jesus knew that suffering for righteousness was only possible under the eye of God. In other words, if you suffered and you did righteous, that was God's allowance in your life and he would reward you for it. So why should we do this? He says, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this could be interpreted wrongly. It might be uh, the, the idea is someone might come alongside and say, well, whoever's suffered then will no longer sin. But I don't think that's the point. I think it actually, that, that's flipped. I think it's this, that, that since you're suffering, you've given evidence that you're, free, that you're done with sin. In other words, for Peter's readers, the reason that they're suffering is because they've embraced Christ. So their suffering is evidence that they have definitively walked away from sin. In other words, they've committed themselves to Christ and that's led to their suffering. So those who suffer in the flesh show that in fact, they are done with sin. And they've done this so that, or in order that, they might live the rest of the time in the flesh. For, not for human passions, but for the will of God. So it says here in the, in the NIV, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Time in the flesh obviously refers to the rest of the time we have remaining in this life. 
And we live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There are really two options for Peter, and this goes back to 2.11 and 12 we noted earlier. Should we live for human passions or for the honor of God? And obviously we should do for the honor of God. And then he says, for the time that has passed suffices, is sufficient for doing the will of the Gentiles. Or in the NIV here, for you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That is, he's talking to people who are recent converts. And he says, you've already filled up the cup of sin. That's sufficient. It's enough. You don't need to do that anymore. That's that's your past life. You spent enough time doing that. But instead, what should you do? You should choose something else. Now, he mentions six vices, six things that the pagans choose to do. And he has them in a couple of unequal categories. The first refers to sexual vices, sensuality, passions. Three of them actually have to do with alcohol and partying. So drunkenness, revelry, drinking parties. And the last one has to do with lawless idolatry. And I don't think the alcohol and partying is actually disconnected from lawless idolatry. And you might think that that's an odd thing, but in the ancient world, you'll remember that most of the festivities and things happened in the idol temples. And they would have the feasts, and lots of wine would flow at these sorts of things, and you could not imagine the impurity uh, from a sexual, sexual side. I mean, if you, if you think back to Corinth and the number of temple prostitutes that they had. And this doesn't, this doesn't surprise anybody at all because just think of it this way. The scripture indicates that if mankind rejects the God who is, they make a God in their image. And if you make a God in mankind's image, what's he going to desire? Well, just watch Netflix. Just watch uh, whatever's on TV. And that's what men desire. And so they think that's what God desires. And so sexuality is a central thing. Drunkenness, partying, these sorts of things. Essentially, what Peter's saying is the time that's passed suffices for you to do what the society at large thinks is the fun thing, is the place to be, is the... Is, is all, the, all the joy is going to be here at this party. And if you're not there, man, you're going to miss it. And Peter says, the time this past suffices for doing this. And then he says, <clears throat> verse 4, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. Now, Peter mentions they're surprised. Uh, in fact, the, the literal language is they're surprised when you don't run with them into the same flood of reckless living. So you're not carried along with them with this flood of, of sinfulness. And this, you know, I mean, it, it's not surprising that this is surprising to them. Because they look at us and they say, why aren't you coming? Why wouldn't you want to come to this party? I mean, this is where it's at. Like, you're going to miss out. And it's going to be awesome. And you say, I don't actually think it'll be awesome. Uh, 
And they just think you're weird. They, they, they're surprised that you wouldn't want to do what everybody wants to do. And I mean, you know, just, just look around. I mean, if, if you work in a public, public workplace and, you know, a couple of years back, um, or I won't get into specifics, but there are times where everybody's talking about the new show and it's rated, you know, that nobody under 100 should watch it because it's, uh, you know, the sort of stuff that's in there that you should never see. Um, and, and they're all talking about it at the coffee table or whatever and, and uh, they say, hey, did you see that? And you say, I've never seen that show and I don't intend to. What do you mean? The cinematics are awesome. Yeah, that's why you're watching it, I'm sure. Um, you know, I, I don't care what the cinematics are. I just, I, I don't, I, my righteous soul would be vexed watching that. I just can't do it. And they think they're surprised that you do such thing. All right? So they're surprised. But, but the thing that might surprise us is not that they're surprised about that fact, but that they then revile you. They speak evil of you. That's, that's what he says. And so they, they heap abuse on you. Why is that? What do you think? They're convicted. Okay. I think that's a part of it. They're convicted. By your not going along, you're reminding them that they shouldn't be going along. And if everybody just jumped on board, then they would feel better about themselves. But your refusal to do so reminds them of what they're trying to forget. And this is, this is morality on a whole. Like you say, well, why can't, why can't they just leave Christians alone and just like, you know, okay, we, we haven't signed on to the sexual agenda of our age, but just leave us alone. They can't leave us alone because the moment they leave us alone, is the moment they recognize that there's a different perspective than theirs. And they don't want that perspective ever shared. We have to have this uniform view that everything's okay because the moment somebody says it's not okay, they might feel bad. And we say, praise the Lord, they do. They should. They should feel bad. God designed you to feel bad about that. And everybody's saying, well, let's not make them feel bad, but sometimes we should feel bad about what we're doing. And so they heap abuse because they, they don't want that to be the case. And, uh, and so they heap abuse on you, it says here. Uh, verse uh, 5 then, but they will, give, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think, um, I think the point here is, that you don't have to defend yourself. You're not the one who uh, adjudicates and gets, gets the even score. No, at the end of the day, judgment's in the hands of the Lord. And so we leave it to him. Him, him mentioning the one ready to judge the living and the dead suggests that this judgment is, is coming. It is around the corner. And then he says this, and we've got to close here in just a moment, but he says, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. 
Now, if you've got an older version, it would just say something like, for this reason, the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. But the NIV is right here. The gospel is preached to those who are now dead. In other words, he's saying, this is the reason the gospel is preached to people who've now died, because God will judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge those who are alive, but he's going to judge those who are dead. And they needed to hear the gospel truth so that they could be redeemed. So that, he says, they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live to God in regard to the spirit. And he makes this distinction. He says, in regard to the flesh, mankind looks at you and judges you and says, you are faulty. But the judgment that really matters is the judgment of the spirit. And this is the judgment God's going to make one day. Now, the next time we get together, we're going to talk about that coming judgment in which Jesus is going to, or in which Peter is going to declare to us uh, that uh, the judgment will begin at the household of God and uh, that despite the sufferings we experience today it is better to be enduring the sufferings we endure now than to endure the sufferings that one day will come upon those who disobey the gospel of God yes No, I think, I think he's referring to those who are now dead. So that to those who are, who when they were, when the gospel was preached to them, they were alive. But now they're dead. And so the gospel was preached, yes, the gospel was preached to them when they were alive because God judges both the living and the dead. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, so that's why it says to the now dead. They're dead now, but when they were preached to, it was when they were alive. Oh, okay. Yep. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. One more thing. Yeah.